everybody. Welcome back. I, a couple episodes ago, had talked about Hempwood, and I said I really wanted to get the folks at Hempwood here, and lo and behold, I have Greg Wilson, owner, president, whatever, Grand Poobah of, of Hempwood and Fibonacci LLC, which, first of all, Greg, welcome. Second of all, Fibonacci LLC. How cool is that? Like, do you have like mathematical formulas just running through your head all day long? I mean, can you tell me where that's coming from, how that relates to Hempwood, or is it at all related? Well, yeah, well thanks for having us here. And yes, Fibonacci is kind of, if you look at all of our logos and if you look at all of the different publications and things like that, um, coming to work every day, there's a lot of different ways of making money. But if you do something that has a positive tick to it, so something that's eco-friendly and in our perspective here, and you can sprinkle some little subliminal messages through your marketing and sales material, it makes it a little bit more fun. So my entire career has been based off of an algorithm that I was involved in writing in college. And so the algorithm of how a tree grows and then reverse engineering that and being able to use fast growing plant fibers, uh, focusing on oak because that's kind of the bulk of the market, um, saying, hey, right. if I want to have a density, which gives you your hardness and then determines your stability of your wood, if you can start at the ending point and then work that backwards, it's just a math equation. So the Fibonacci sequence is actually in our algorithm for manufacturing all the different products that I've been involved with throughout my career. So I guess this really? is my 16th year of doing this stuff. Um, wow. I started with actually vinyl siding and oak flooring, and then moved into bamboo flooring, um, and then something called strand woven eucalyptus that you see Cali bamboo sells all across the US. Sure, uh, yeah. And then smart oak down in Tasmania, and now hempwood here in Kentucky. Smart oak, I'm actually quite familiar with that product. That's an interesting really? one because you're pulling all kinds of essentially tertiary local species and what, combining them into a composite product and selling it as one branded product, multiple species, correct? Yes, but um, it goes back even farther than that. So in Tasmania, when the British showed up, you had Captain Cook that showed up down there, Tasman, I believe, which is the Tasman Strait in Tasmania. They actually landed and said, these trees have the same performance, and this is like 1600s, as mm -hmm. oak, as European oak. And so they called right. it Tasmanian oak. And then the scientists showed up hundreds of years later and said, no, that's actually a eucalypt. And there's three different species of eucalypt that you guys are calling Tasmanian oak. So it's really neat how they do things there, but it performs similar to oak, but it is a eucalypt and it is three different species and some grow in a little bit more of the, um, the wet areas, the low areas, and then some grow more on hillsides to get more sunshine and less rain, less wet feet. So mm -hmm. yeah, smart oak, um, my partner there is Dario Tamat. And him and I were hired by the forestry department in Tasmania. It's getting close to 10 years ago. Um, when we had been, I'd been kicking the tires for setting up a strand woven eucalyptus plant in Tasmania for a former employer, the guys that kind of came in and bought out the bamboo stuff. And mm -hmm. um, the forestry department called and said, hey, we have a project. We need to do a value add to our pulp grade logs because one of their um, paper mills that was supposed to get up and running never got off the ground. And so we figured out a way to take the logs they couldn't do a solid with and turn it back into a solid product. 
And so we make flooring, we make furniture, we make what we call home goods and hobby woods um, right. in Tasmania. And actually we send it up to some of our uh, flooring plants in China that we deal with and from my bamboo days. And I still have some ownership in them. So we make the wood and then we send it to the flooring plants and then we sell our flooring mostly back to Australia. Actually, the only one in the United States is in my previous house in Annapolis where my business partner, he, uh, he sent me three pallets of flooring and um, raw boards over as mm -hmm. a wedding present in 2017 maybe, 16, 17, something in there. Ended up knocking walls down, redoing the kitchen, doing this big, great room as soon as you walk in the door with all smart oak trim, smart oak flooring, smart oak benches, smart oak dinner table, everything. And then we moved to Kentucky four months later. <laughs> so, <laughs> Isn't that always how it goes? Very nice. Well, but, that's that's just down the road for me in Annapolis. I'm in Bel Air, Maryland, so uh, probably an hour drive south of here. Down interesting. In My sister-in-law nice. from Kingsville right by you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Drive so, through it every day on the way to the lumber yard. Very right. good. So do you know where Edgewater is? Just yes, south of absolutely. Sure. The little airport there that the um, the Naval Academy has their little trainer planes on? Right. I'm right beside there. Oh, that's interesting. Huh. So, Small world. Look at that. Absolutely. Um, well, but, so I guess it makes sense then that you ended up in a hemp product because we were talking about, you know, stranded eucalyptus and things like that. You're already kind of in this mad scientist role of of combining things together to make these various composite products, although the vinyl siding thing is a little bit interesting. That's kind of a, 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 a curveball in, in the dossier there. But uh, what exactly drove you from the smart oak world into a hemp based product and into what is now hempwood? Well, so with doing what's called strand woven bamboo, I was involved in writing some of those patents 15, 18 years ago, um, okay. where you take the bamboo pole and you break it down into a strand and then you dip it into a glue and you dry it out and press it into a block. And then that block mm -hmm. is cut into boards and goes into either solid boards or engineered flooring. Mm -hmm. And so um, during those times when the Chinese government deemed the patents to be a monopoly, the boss of the parent company that kind of took over all the little guys that were doing stuff, uh, he said, Greg, you better figure something out. And we had a nanotech lab set up in China and that was an Australian company as well. So the nanotech lab at Flinders University and the nanotech lab at Zhejiang Forestry University, we tested over 200 different types of um, wood or plant species to try to use the fiber. And what mm -hmm. you actually need is something that has what looks like straws or capillaries running through it that right. grow really fast. They cause it to grow really fast and really straight, but at the same time, they're easily mm -hmm. impregnated with the adhesive. And right, because your capillaries run full length then, in other words, right? Yep. Because it's growing so fast, you've got to have a capillary from like root all the way to tip, in Correct. other words. So, yeah, similar, similar to fast-grown plantation trees, in other words. That's what uh, strand-woven eucalyptus is, is fast-growing yeah. eucalyptus grandis that was planted in southern China to stop landslides and the typhoon, mm -hmm. so the typhoons uh, that right. happened in the south. And then they became overpopulated. And so that's what yeah. your cheap plywood is, or you can turn it into a high-end solid. So right. 
back in the 2008-2010 period, I tried hemp. And hemp, it worked, but I mean, it was kind of a joke. I had a sample of it and I used to keep it on my desk. And when customers would come to visit, and I'd say, hey, and the manufacturing algorithm is so versatile, we can turn weed into wood. And <laughs> nice. people just laughed about it. And then, sure, um, yeah. you said this is 10, 2010? 2008 to 2010, we were okay. doing some uh, recycled wood projects. Uh, right, but it was that, still illegal at that point, wasn't it? Not in China. They make tea out of it. Oh, yeah, not in China, sure. But China in, actually in, grows more hemp than the rest of the world combined. Hmm. Okay. But it's a different type of hemp. So it's not exactly what we need, but it's kind of close and it just ticks some of the boxes as, hey, let's try this. Mm -hmm. So um, I knew that it kind of worked. And then I got a call from one of my friends who was at the world's largest flooring company. I'll leave it at that. But um, he said, hey, Greg, I remember that sample you had there and you've been trying to get something off the ground I called Timber Technologies. So Timber mm -hmm. Technologies was just taking this algorithm and trying to create timbers out of it. And so it was strand-woven eucalyptus, recycled woods, smart oak. Um, but it was always you either have to find a very low-value input, such as a agricultural product, or right. a waste product or a waste wood, like the offcuts from plywood mills. And then you can dip it in glue and press it back together. Right. So he said, hey, hemp is on the ballot, and I know you can do something like this. Uh, and some, some of the big companies took a look at it. But in 2014, it was only legal on a state level and not on a national level. And so in order to get investing in these big corporations, they have to follow SEC guidelines. Right. So they gave it the thumbs down, but they had initiated the idea that it was – the market would actually accept it. So right. in passing... Well, because of their federal, their national footprint, it didn't make sense for them. Correct. So it makes more sense of an entrepreneurial product, a Absolutely. small kind of grassroots, <laughs> pardon the, the pun there, um, mm -hmm. hemp roots. Um, very cool. So this so, is truly cottage industry, in other words. Uh, yeah, I sold my house to build a factory. It doesn't get right. any more. Literally cottage industry. <laughs> I've got a cot in the office. Yeah, nice. Um, wow. Yes. Yeah, so that's where it all started. And, and walking out the door, he said, hey, we can't do this. But you know what that means. He said, you're sitting on a billion-dollar idea. You just have to go and put it into practice because we're right. telling you the market's there, but we're not allowed to service it. We can't touch it. So interesting. I went home and turned the. Um, obviously, was doing it on on the sly. So I turned uh, the bottom level of my house into a R and D center, and I joined up with a Oregon University and a Kentucky University because they were the two first states to go about it. Um, them in Colorado, and I think Vermont was on there too. So I found the West Coast and a middle America university. I did a pilot program with them so I could get the hemp legally and start doing some of my trials. And Murray State University here in uh, Murray, Kentucky was the easiest and best to work with. And right. so in doing trials for two years, then I filed patents before the last election. Um, also, I got married before the last election because my wife's Chinese. I lived in China for 14 years. So okay. while setting up 53 bamboo plants over there, um, yeah. I met my wife, 
we came back here and I figured hemp was on six ballots in the 2016 elections and green cards weren't going to get any easier. So I rolled the dice, filed the patents right before the election and got married. And then wow. a year later, we actually had our church wedding. That's, that's quite a year <laughs> and quite a roll of the dice. That's fantastic. So here we are today, you now have a factory that's open. Of course, you know, history has spoken and, and the hemp agricultural uh, farming is, is legal now. So are you actually doing the farming itself? Like, do you own acreage or are you partnering with local farmers that are producing your raw material? So it's a little bit different every year. This okay. industry is so young that it is more dynamic than anything you can imagine. Okay. Uh, we have a seed bank here in West Kentucky that is working on different types of genetics, and they're supported by a Polish research center. And the Polish research center never stopped doing genetic research on hemp, so they're about 90 years old, where the rest of the world kind of closed the curtain. So okay. they have genetics that they've sent to the United States, and then they're trying to figure out how well they work and things like that, and how tall they'll grow, and where you need to put them at sunlight hours, soils, fertilizers, all that. You're not allowed to use pesticides nor herbicides. So here in West Kentucky, they are um, they're growing for the seed, and then they sell us the bottom of the product, just like the wheat straw model. So for mm -hmm. wheat straw, the top of the wheat plant gets cut off, gets sent to a mill, and that's what makes flour to make bread. The same as the seed and the flour. It makes oils and it makes foods. Then the right. bottom of the plant has to get removed. And so they bale it up and sell it to us in five-foot round bales that weigh about 700 pounds each. So mm -hmm. that's our primary source of raw material. But... The university grows it for us for different types of trials because we're part of the Murray State University Agricultural Hemp Innovation Center. And so, oh, very nice. Yep. And working with them, they do cross pollination studies, they do fertilizer studies. They're allowed to do some of the herbicides and pesticides that you're not allowed to commercially do because the USDA has not approved them yet. Right. And but so still, you've got a working R&D going on right in your backyard. Well, Very it gets cool. even better than that. <laughs> All right. So we also have through the Agricultural Hemp Innovation Center and other people, if they're involved in hemp research, joining one of these centers is worth its weight in gold because we have a chemist who actually helps us uh, develop and implement our adhesives in the plant. And he was a chemist who worked for Dow Chemical for oh, eight or 10 years before he became a professor here. Okay. So he does our research that we couldn't afford to have like an in-house six-figure PhD do on a right. part-time basis at the university, which is funded through our donation to the Agricultural Hemp Innovation Center. And then he has his interns that work on it. And then we have the ag interns who work through the ag school here at Murray, which is actually top notch in the world, I've found. Um, Dr. Brandon was the first one to plant hemp in the US. And so they have five years experience or six years, I guess, planting hemp. And so they have three different farms that they planted on and they can tell you more what not to do than what to do because it's still okay. such a wide range. But we have 
three interns from the ag school that work for us here and they take our seeds and they plant them on campus they have three different farms and they tell us what's going to happen here we actually have them plan a couple weeks in advance and that way they can tell us what's going to happen two weeks from now in the age of our seed so we can say all right harvest is ready let's go wow Um, okay we also have the engineering school and so the engineering school because we can't really afford to have all of the different softwares and all of that stuff where we own the licenses that cost four or five thousand bucks we get interns from the engineering school and they turn it into their class projects and so how to actually dip the glue has turned into the design for our new vat for dipping the glue and also resulted in us buying a thirty thousand dollar gorbel crate to be able to relieve some of the um, ergonomic issues that happen when you're trying to move too much material too fast by hand. Right. Uh, And we have the safety school. So they have um, the School of Engineering actually has a safety program. So we became OSHA compliant by getting a grad school intern to do his senior thesis on making us OSHA compliant. So the only way this works is just buddying up with the university. And they want to have something new and something that puts them on the map because the school here, it had uh, John Moran, who is the number two draft pick in the NBA uh, last year that came from the school here. And so that had all eyes on Murray State, this 10,000 student West Kentucky State School. And then he left after his sophomore year. And this year they have Hempwood where they're saying, hey. Hemp actually has a legitimate purpose outside of being ingested into the bottle. And you're you're the new first round draft pick, in other words. That's great. No, I don't know if it's that good, but <laughs> we bring a bunch of interns here and we give them jobs when they graduate. But can so. can you sink them from the baseline? Is the other question. I mean, come on. <laughs> oh, come on. I'm I'm five foot nine, a little bit overweight <laughs> now that I'm getting middle age. All right, uh, all right. not Point much of a then. basketball player. Very nice. <laughs> So let's let's start at the end and then work backwards a little bit. Um, I don't want to assume that a lot of people know what the product is. People who listen to this show got an introduction to the product uh, a couple episodes ago whenever this airs. So w- you are producing dimensional lumber at this point. You're producing turning blanks. You're producing all kinds of small, I would call them uh, woodworking hobbyist type blanks, bowl blanks, coaster blanks, you know, t- uh, bottle stoppers, all the turning size woods that you expect from your, your offcuts essentially. But then you're also producing, uh, what is it? Two sizes of dimensional lumber. It's a five quarter by, well, nominal five quarter by six and a four quarter by six or something by 48, I think. So it is, yeah, it's five and a half by five and a half by four feet long is the block. We just make cans. So in the wood industry, everybody knows what a cant is. We make a cant, which is your standard trading unit. And then we cut Uh that down into what the market wants to buy. Right. And you actually sell the cants as well, don't you? Yes, we Uh, do. Five and a quarter by five and a quarter square by 48. Um, and then you also are, and this is, will lead us into discussion of biomimicry, I think, but you're also selling them in flat sawn and rift 
face, which I find particularly interesting. This is where up until now, anybody who's thinking, okay, they're using you know this plant and they're uh, using a glue and they're pressing it under heat and pressure. Okay, it's, it's particle board or it's OSB. Um, the difference that I'm seeing obviously here is the fact that you can actually sell a flat and a rift sawn piece because you have oriented um, the, the hemp fibers to, to mimic essentially the growth rings of, of a tree. And so you get that straight grain riff, but then also that not quite cathedral look of a, of flats on, but pretty dang close. I mean, you can at a quick glance, look at that board and go, okay, that's wood. Um, you know, you would have to look a little bit closer, I think, before you really, and you probably have to know what you're talking about before you start to realize this is a composite material. So, we, we've got a board that is made from a material that is incredibly fast grown, like what, six months from seed to harvest, something along that line? From seed to board shipping is six months. We're four okay. months in growth. All right. Wow. All right. Totally different thing. So we're talking about, um, you know, a, amazing, amazing cut off the time, you know, decades and decades off of growing a tree. And then just the sheer amount of time for, for drying from log to lumber, you can have a year that will pass before something is actually ready to sell in most instances. And that's obviously taking away the decades of growth time. Um, certainly modern silvicultural practices growing for specific purposes, you can have a very sustainable harvest, but it still is 40 years in between harvests. So right off the bat, we're talking half a year, massive, massive change. So let's compare, if, if we can, apples to apples. You're making boards. How do your boards stack up to other boards? Technically speaking, um, kind of run through things. We talk about hardness. Um, I think on your website, you're in the 26, 2900 um, Pounds force on Jenka rating, is that right? Yes. So uh, Oregon State University has done some of these tests and trials for us over the last decade with the different products. And the mm -hmm. Oregon State University, as well as some of our industry partners that um, are buying wood, have come back with results between 2,500 and 2,800. Sure. And so it sense. all depends on which board you're working with and everything like that. Right. But the density of the product determines your hardness. So right. your older trees and the biomimicry that you're talking about, um, a 200-year-old tropical hardwood that has a very high density because it's grown for so long also has your hardness is similar to what we're doing, like your ipes and your Brazilian cherries, jatoba, all of those different wood species have a similar right. density, which directly translates into what your hardness is going to be because sure. the Jenka test is just a ball that you press at how much pressure does it take to make a certain size dent in it. Right. And yeah. so the whole thing is based around what's our compression ratio. And that compression mm -hmm. ratio is based on what is the density of the raw material plus the glue. And then you have to dry it down to a certain moisture content so you don't get cracking like you see in normal wood. Because when you mm -hmm. fresh cut a say a eucalyptus log that's 60 percent 50 60 percent water the first thing you see is cracks or splits in the end of the log and so then right. you have to use your s spikes to be able to stick the end of the log so if you're shipping it a long ways or whatever you're not going to lose the end foot on each log yeah but we found that through this 
process, your standard operating procedure, can be dried out before it gets to that point. And therefore, you can avoid having those splits and cracks. Right. So there's all these different little things in the biomimicry that we're talking about here. But um, in general, we're about 20 to 30 percent harder than hickory. So for the domestic wood guys that are listening to this thing, um, it also comes with the pain in the ass of having to work it like hickory. Yeah. Because you need your carbide tips. And um, for this, planing doesn't work very well. You have to sand it. But the dimensional stability is so high that because you're not losing that much moisture in it and the density is up there, that we'll cut it down to a 4.5 millimeter and we'll dry it and then we'll lay it up on engineered flooring and we'll sand it and you still have a four millimeter top layer. So the amount that's actually lost in the drying and the different processes is very minimal because we're, for lack of a better word, baking in the stability after we press Mm -hmm. it and bake it in the oven. Sure. That makes sense. So from a stability perspective, are we talking about, is it an isotropic material or is it anisotropic like regular wood? It's closer to regular wood. Okay. So So there are additives that we're working in the glue that can mm-hmm. do that but we've included them some of our patents pending so it still has a little bit of ways to get to that but mm-hmm. the heavier the glue content and the more oil based you lead on the glue so the dirtier the glue the more stable the product the cleaner the right. glue the less stable the product when it comes to moisture right hmm. interesting there's a lot of similarities to a plywood um, in that particular aspect. Well, I mean, you're using a soy-based glue, correct? Yeah, it's the same, guys. It's the same patents on um, the yeah, Columbia Forestry the product stuff. Columbia Forest stuff, yeah. yeah. So Lee they're, over they're, there, they're, he's he's really good with kind of when I freak out about, hey, why is this season doing this to our wood? He'd be like, hey, relax. That's what happens. <laughs> That's what happens. We dealt with that 20 years ago. Come on now. All right, so I guess it goes to say, it goes to follow then that you are CARB 2, TOSCA Title Four compliant, all that fun stuff. Yes, there is okay. no added VOCs. Nice, nice. TOSCA Title Six. excuse me. Did I just say Title Four? God, such you an You did, amateur. but actually, I'm not really that familiar with TOSCA. I know it is a thing. Yeah. I do know that CARB 2 has been the end all for a long time. And TOSCA is yeah. just federal now. Instead of it being California Air Resources, it's now just a federal thing. It's 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 the whole country, you know, is is now Toxic Substance Control Act instead of it just being a local or regional bill. Which, frankly, California was such a large market to begin with that everybody just went carb compliant. Um, you know, the, everybody switched over to the soy-based stuff because they didn't. You're not you're not going to run two production lines to service California and the rest of the world. So, um, yeah, Tosca is kind of something that was already there. It just kind of made it official. So, yeah, it's really not that much different. Um, the key is the whole, you know, formaldehyde base. You know, if you've met NAUF standards, you're perfectly fine. But it's something to think about because. Uh, there are loopholes on a lot of this for some other composite products that is still being figured out. You guys are already <laughs> there, so it doesn't really doesn't shouldn't be too much of a concern there. I know so, exactly which ones you're talking about. So 
Yeah. I'll just <laughs> the eight hundred yeah. pound gorilla. How does uh, phenylformaldehyde get accepted into carb two? I don't know. Um, it shouldn't through various points in the process because I've used a lot of phenylformaldehyde and I'll probably not live as long as I should have because I've worked those <laughs> plants. I can say that with phenylformaldehyde, if it's in its liquid form, which is very common, it off-gasses significantly more. Whenever you are curing that in the process of um, baking, say, a piece of plywood, the people standing around that could have issue as well. So even if it is fully cured in the finished product and can pass test, which there's two different standards to test, one you're allowed to wrap tinfoil around the edges of it when mm-hmm. doing your test, and one you are not. And you sh- wood guys should probably look really hard at where the test was done because certain countries, uh, you are allowed to do that. So the China standards, yeah. you're allowed to take a piece of plywood, wrap tinfoil around the open edges of it, and then put it into your testing regime where in the United States you can't, um, yeah. it makes phenylformaldehyde be able to pass. And that's kind of the secret people don't like to talk about. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a, a, lot, there's a lot of other reasons not to buy Chinese plywood, but that's just one to add to the list. So for, for longtime listeners of this show, go back and listen to that plywood episode and don't even get me started on Chinese plywood mills. That's a whole, whole other issue there. So I, I think this is, this is particularly interesting then. So we've got a dimensionally stable product that is, you know, as hard as some of the best flooring on the market. I mean, Brazilian cherry Jadava is kind of the, the, the end all be all. It's really the, the, the golden standard, if you will, when it comes to hardness, it's a perfect flooring material. It's also quite dimensionally stable. Um, it's interesting. I want to go back to something you said earlier about you don't want to plane this. You want to sand this product. Is that because the individual hemp fibers themselves just don't shear because they're so strong or what, what makes you say you have to sand it? It's exactly why. So if you look, if you compare this to a piece of concrete, the hemp fibers are like the rebar in the concrete. And then your herd and your adhesives are what actually holds it together. Mm -hmm. And so those hemp fibers are so strong that they always become kind of frayed like a piece of hemp rope. But you can sand them because planing noise has this little stringy pieces that end up there. And if that doesn't work for some of the different products people are making, then you can do different wood hardeners for people that are turning bowls and stuff like that. They mm-hmm. use CA glue right yeah. around those really weird edges or people that are doing picture frames. Um, or if you're doing a non-beveled engineered floor, which would essentially be for a tabletop. Uh, right. If you put on a CA glue or a polyurethane coating and then you sand it off, it actually hardens it enough that you can sand it. But if not, then it, um, it has problems planing especially. And so our guys okay. at Tennessee Wood Flooring that are partnering with us for doing the flooring, they, uh, we talk all the time about how the planer blades are just getting worn out and the boards aren't even really looking that great when it goes through the planer. But if you put it through a drum sander, mm-hmm. no problem. Hmm. Okay. It's interesting. That's good to know because it's kind of at a you know, an additional step. And then of course, carbide blades and all that stuff, but you're still getting kind of a slightly fuzzy surface off of that, off of that, um, 
standard planer. So you're milling into dimension, but then, I mean, I guess it's not that unusual to then kiss everything with a drum sander, especially flooring, because you really want a common dimensional standard for all your flooring. Otherwise you end up with a floor that looks pretty bad when you install it. So I guess that's not that far off, but that's kind of good to know for the individual woodworker. I mean, a guy like myself, I'm a hand tool guy. I mean, I've got a power planer in my shop, but that's it. Everything else is hand planes and hand saws around here. So I'm, it might make me really frustrated to work with this stuff, in other words. Yeah, it's it definitely has its own unique characteristics. And what we're trying to do to let everybody have a a fair setting or the same foundation to be able to work with it is say, hey, if people buy hempwood from us and turn it into something cool, then tag us on Instagram, tag us on nice. Facebook, and let us know how you're working with it and what it does. Right. Just like there's some people making YouTube videos that are explaining much better than us. We just make rectangular logs for a living. They're explaining how to <laughs> right. turn it into something that's a finished product. Sure, sure. So what is there, I mean, it's my understanding, I mean, hemp is pretty high silica contents. How does that translate back to the wood? Because anytime I hear about a species with high silica, the first thing that comes to mind is teak. And it just eats your knives up because essentially it's sandpaper, the, all, that, all that silica in there. Isn't there a pretty high quantity of silica in the hemp? Yes. One of our largest okay. costs outside of labor or utilities is saw blades so <laughs> yeah we can burn through five hundred dollars in saw blades a day um, right. we have a new automated saw that's coming in that has its own sharpener because right now finding someone to be able to sharpen um band saw blades we use the 13.2 footers from baker uh or mm -hmm. lennox we have a baker saw sure. that runs lennox saw blades if anybody does sharpen those and is listening please contact us I have about 150 saw blades that need sharpened, <laughs> and they cost me 200 bucks a piece. So a significant yeah. portion of the cost of hempwood uh, is the cutting, because yeah. right now with our labor and our saw blade cost, it costs us a dollar a foot to cut it. Wow, that's wow, <laughs> that's huge. But yeah, yeah and I these mean, are these are carbide brazed bandsaw blades. In other words, that is correct. So okay. on our four-foot blocks, when we feed them through the, um, the saw, we get about 200 to 250 cuts per mm -hmm. blade, and each right. blade costs us $230. So it costs us a dollar a cut, and then when you back that out at 1.75 or 1.83 uh, square feet that you get per cut, add mm -hmm. the labor back in, and it comes pretty close to a dollar a square foot. Yeah. So even on our top layers for our flooring, um, a dollar a square foot is just cutting. Yeah, yeah, that's that's that. Well, I mean, there's it, fortunately you've got more to the story to tell. I mean, there's certainly enough expensive flooring out there. You know, mushroom wood is a perfect example. You know, it's essentially rotten wood that's been epoxy infused and the stuff is selling for just ridiculous prices. And just because of the fact that it has a reclaimed label on it, you can sell it for $10 a square. Maybe not that much, but you know, close. Still, um, yeah, that's a, that's an issue. Um, I know um, we used to run 
carbide blades on our resol for um, quite some time. And then we actually switched over to a new baker ourselves and run non-carbide blades for just about, you know, everything but the teaks and the epes that we have to, that we do have to run. But if we're resawing, you know, African Sapili or something like that, we're using the non-carbide blades because those things are practically disposable. I mean, it's ridiculous how inexpensive they are. And we're like you, we've got a whole bunch of blades sitting around and it's like, yeah, one of these days we'll package them up and ship them off to, to get sharpened, but you can buy them for like a pennies compared to the carbide ones. Oh, yeah. It's a, They're less it's than a 20 wonderful bucks. world when you, when you, I know. And you're just kind of like, why did we use these carbide all the time? Cause you know, we get one cut out of this, no big deal. We'll just go on. It's not exactly a, an efficient way of looking at it. It's extremely wasteful, but you're right. Sharpening those things is ridiculous. Um, so the new automated saw is going to actually be able to take care of that for you. Um, well, allegedly. So right. let's wait until it gets put in place and run it for a couple of months before, before we go ahead and plan in those price cuts that haven't been realized yet. Right. Yeah. I've got a, I've got a molder that has, um, you know, essentially a central brain that hooks both to the the molder and all the various spindles and the spacing, but then it also hooks to a grinder. So as you dial in a setting for say a crown and it's setting the spacing and on the various six molder heads, it's also then translating that information that essentially that CAD drawing over to the grinder so that it can actually start grinding um, exactly to a, a laser line to, to sharpen a knife. So while you're dulling knives while running whatever it is you're running, thousand feet of something, it's actually sharpening a knife at the same time. Now you still have to pull the knife and replace the knife and there's all kinds of other little checks and balances in order to make sure the knife is set properly on the head, but it's pretty amazingly accurate uh, because it's using the same information from the actual cutting machine to set up the grinding wheel and to set everything. Saw blade is a heck of a lot less complex um, because you don't have a whole bunch of profiles and contours and things. So it might actually do what it says it does. I actually haven't looked into anything like that, but that could be a, a game changer. The question is how fast can it keep up? In other words, if you're going through blades that fast, that, that you, you might need another one of those. Uh, well, a so in our bamboo plants that I've worked with and helped set up over there, we run 42 of them uh, 24 hours a day, 350 days a year. So it will wow. work. We just got to get it to work here. Sure. So we actually have, Good a, luck with I that. mean, we have a team of like 80 people that just run saws. Wow. So wow. it, it should work in principle. It should work. It will work, but it needs to get here, <laughs> get set up, get tweaked. Then we need to have the automatic stacker on the back. So it doesn't still take two people to run because right. it only takes one for the end cuts, the side mill, and then the uh, table that runs back and forth. But mm -hmm. if you have to have another person on the back end stacking it, you're negating probably a quarter of what you're making up by having this all there. Yeah. Yeah. These are the fun issues. This is the stuff that people don't realize when they complain about how much lumber costs. There's a lot of cost. It's very expensive to make boards. And a lot of it is that kind of intangible labor number. You know, I mean, it'd be great. You can automate it. You know, and you can do more capital expenses to automate, but then you end up with a maintenance issue, which comes back to a labor issue. You know, somebody's got to do some of that maintenance. It's a, it's it's a very expensive business. Oh, absolutely. We have uh, another example of that is we actually have a bio burner that we put into our plant, 
And okay. we got this thing installed in right around Christmas. And we got a little slap on the wrist last year from the EPA for <laughs> burning hemp. Um, now, it came in the form of a warning, and we became clean air certified and stuff like that. But um, we burnt, there was a burn ban last year for two or three months. And so as we were working through some of the product last year, we were just kind of stacking it up out back. And the pile got a little bit bigger than it should have. We ended up lighting it on fire. Uh, then we had to revert to throwing away the hemp, which ended up mm. being about $2,500 a month. And so wow. in just disposing of the waste, the sawdust, as well as because we have no herbicides and pesticides, 20% of our hemp that comes in the door is weeds. And so it has to hmm. be manually picked out. Wow. So in being manually picked out and thrown away, you got a ton or two a day. So wow. it ended up being 2500 bucks a month. Hemp that gets rained on costs more in a dumpster. So we purchased a significant purchase, which is a bio burner. And so now mm -hmm. we grind up our waste and then it gets burnt in essentially a glorified pellet mill that then transmits the energy via uh, glycine, which is a derivative of glycol, throughout the plant mm -hmm. to our ovens and to our wood kiln and to heat the factory wow. in the wintertime. Very nice. So Very nice. it turned a $2,500 a month cost into a $1,000 a month energy surplus or replacing using electricity or natural gas for that. But now I got to wow. pay a guy That's to fantastic. grind it. Yeah, and it doesn't exactly grind well, does it? Yeah, Again, no, I get my engineering intern, whenever he does something wrong, he goes back to what we call his office. He sits back there and grinds for an hour or two and thinks about what he did wrong. <laughs> nice. He's peeling potatoes. I like it. That's great. So walk me through the production process. You've got, you know, a bale of hemp that is wet, I imagine. Um, so it's got to be dried. Um, right, you're drying it first before you're putting it into a press, or are you drying it while you're baking it? No, it is actually something that is standard in the hay or wheat straw industry. Okay. So field dry is one of our um, standards for bringing the material in. So it has okay. to be dried less than 15%, which is mm -hmm. you cut it down, you let it dry on one side for two or three days, and then you turn it over, and if there's no rains, you let it dry for one or two days until it's field dry, and then it's baled. So that bale okay. comes into the plant, dried out, and we invented a machine we called the toilet paper unroller. And so <laughs> there was nothing out Perfect there visual. To do it, but it looks like a big toilet paper unroller that has a giant arm that comes down with spikes on it that actually is driven by a three-phase motor that unrolls this, and you pull it out, and you put it through a crushing machine, which is actually a repurposed plywood roller. Okay. So that pulls right. while the other thing pushes, unrolling it, and it rolls it out into our glue area, which then we take it and we put it into a batching system. And this batching system is basically chain link fence. Okay. It's dunked into glue. It's picked up by our crane and put onto a drip table, which then drips back into the glue vats that we have there. It's put onto racks and it's put into our drying systems. Our original drying system, which we're currently running with now, we took a tobacco barn, hooked up a silo dryer, and then a recirculating fan to it. So we got about 
somewhere between 30 and 40,000 CFMs blown through there with wow. a temperature that the glue allows. And then those racks come out and they're weighed, batched, and pressed into our giant press machine. Okay. Um, we have a new dryer that we're actually building right now and the crane arrives tomorrow to, to set it, but I bought a rail car. We're gonna take this rail car and we're gonna hook up the guts from five different tobacco barns to it. And then it's gonna have these silo dryers hooked to the sides of it, blowing hot air in and then recirculating it with these different humidity sensors on top of it that'll exhaust the air that becomes more than 90% saturated and then blow in new hot air that recirculates through. So it's, I'm, I'm- I'm dating myself with this, but I'm hearing Tim, the tool man, Taylor in the background grunting. This is, this is, you're having way too much fun hooking up bigger and bigger dryers and bigger and bigger systems. Oh, wow. I just have to keep producing that way. Um, the investment dollars keep coming in so I can build bigger dryers and get new telehandlers and build new efficient ways of doing stuff. So yeah, it's great. It's literally science and engineering every day. That's really cool. So what is the, where is the limitation then on these four foot cans? Why is it only four feet? No, that's so right after the press that we just talked about, mm-hmm. we had to get off the ground by buying a motorcycle powder coating oven off of Facebook marketplace, which only nice. supports our four foot molds, which we only had okay. 30 four foot molds. And with the press, we originally ordered 70 six foot molds, which six foot okay. is our standard that we do for flooring. Okay. And so it's really, it's not a limitation of the product, it's a limitation of the production, the actual, um, the molds themselves and the, um, the uh, machinery, machinery, yeah, to actually produce the molds. Correct. Or to, so, to, to press the molds and everything. Now, Charles, who's my right hand here, he's our machinist. He has our, one of our 20-foot containers gutted. He's got a 20,000 CFM um, blower hooked up to guts from another tobacco barn that is hooked to our new bio burner for our new oven. So it's a 20 foot container with a radiator essentially with a blower on it. So now we have a rail system that we're putting in to be able to take carts because they weigh 20,000 pounds with the blocks on them into the Mm -hmm. new oven and bake them. And then they come out on that rail on the other side. And there's cranes that are coming in before and after that so you can load it and unload it because each one of them inside of its mold weighs like 330 pounds. Right. Wow. So it's just a matter of building it. How fast can we build the thing out? And it will be six foot um, within the next couple of months. Okay. That's fantastic. And then the new saw comes in and we just finally got all of the hemp out of our sidewall. With coronavirus, it shuts stuff down here for a little bit. So we were hoping to have in April the tool shop and the wood shop um, cleared out with all the hemp from last year because the rains came quick so we had to end up shoving a couple thousand bales of hemp under every roof we could find which included our tool shop and our wood shop so we finally burned through all that hemp and now we're you're, you're sitting on it right now aren't you you're actually like sitting your desk is, is a couple bales of hemp and your chair is some hemp and yeah I'll send you some pictures over our desk is made out of hemp <laughs> But nice. Well, of course, it's got to be. So one of these cans, once you know, it comes out of the mold, what is the weight of one of these uh, five, well, five and a quarter, or isn't it? Five, five and a quarter half. by five and a half square by four feet long. What's the weight of that? 60 pounds. Okay. 
All right. So that gives me an idea. We are looking at a similar cant of, of probably, I don't think I've ever lifted a cant of Brazilian cherry quite that large, but Brazilian cherry is probably going to be heavier than that, I would think. It has a density um, of about 850 to 950 kilos per cube, which we are slightly higher than that, but we will have a 15% moisture content. So it pulls it okay. back into an absolute density right on par with Brazilian cherry. Interesting. Okay. Hmm. So, wow. This is because that was one of my, one of my, I don't know, call it what you will, concerns was certainly um, if you're looking at this from a moving beyond kind of the, the hobby woodworker and moving into the commercial sector, they don't like short stuff. Um, you know, with the exception maybe of flooring. I mean, flooring can deal with pretty much any length or width and they're not... Um, real picky on there because they're they're dealing with number two common material most of the time but once you start moving into production and the cabinetry and furniture and millwork they're looking for for longer pieces but then we're also you know the the weight is kind of an issue at the same time you know how much is that one individual piece of of base or trim or crown or whatever going to end up weighing but it's not like you're out of spec with anything that isn't already on the market. In fact, you're kind of in line with something that is already a hallmark of the market, that being the Brazilian cherry. So can you tell me, at least right now, how does it compare price-wise? Right now, we're kind of on the high end. And mm -hmm. that's just because we haven't got our act together. We're still sure. kind well, of MacGyvering everything we do. Yeah, because you got to replace a saw blade with every board you cut. Oh, yeah. That, so... Right now, we're selling at $8 a board foot. Okay. $8 a square foot for a one by six to our end customers. Uh, we have some mm -hmm. deals in place. We have Real Lumber, who's been working with us really well. Danny out there, mm -hmm. big supporter. Sure. We got pallets rolling out that way fairly frequently. So okay. um, California is our biggest market. Uh, he showed up while we were still a hole in the ground. And so while we were still a hole in the ground, he said, I want to be your guy in California. I said, well, that's awesome. Place the order. And there you are. And sure enough, he's placing the orders continually. I mean, I think he was even, I don't know if he actually did it or not, but he was talking about hustling the stuff out of his garage when California shut down to still be able to fulfill online orders. So, wow. Danny gets it so obviously the, the demand is still there for the product. I mean, they've got a, they've done some pretty cool things with social media as well. They've got a couple of YouTube guys in building, uh, showing the product. Um, yeah. I mean, what's interesting about it is that it takes a lot of the, the guesswork that a lot of the average woodworker kind of gets confused about. I mean, just the terminology of board footage is already confusing a lot of people. Um, frankly, I have my own, my own opinions on that, but I'm starting to feel that the board foot has become an antiquated term that the market doesn't quite understand. Um, I mean, the flooring guys refer to square. Um, shoot, the siding guys are the same way. They're looking at it in square footage. This volumetric measure is really something that only the lumber industry is really using and not the lumber industry's customers. Correct. So we end up, we end up alienating our customers because we're forcing them to use our terminology and they don't quite understand what it is. And then they're like, well, why does it cost this much? Well, it's this much for board foot. Well, what's a board foot? And it's, it's, uh, it creates animosity, which I'm, I'm not a fan of. I don't, I don't like that confrontation. I want a customer is supposed to be always right. So what you have created is a product that really here are the dimensions 
you know, this is what the dimensions will be. And, and maybe that will, you know, it sounds like the only thing stopping you from creating other dimensions is just different molds. You know, if you want to make a one by 12, you just got to make a 12 by 12 can, you know, and buy another crane that can lift that 12 by 12 can. But um, it doesn't seem like there's any limitations other than just production. Oh, there's, and, you know, there's a magic ratio of 10. And okay. if you do not abide by the magic ratio of 10, then you're destined for failure with wood movement. So okay. 10 to 1 thickness to width. As soon as you go outside of that number, then your claim rates jump to a situation, at least in flooring, that are not acceptable. Hmm. So okay. your width, uh, and it, it all goes back to, do you know why a 1 by 6 is actually three quarter by five and a half because it's been milled down to from its rough size down to its plain size once you run it through the mill once you run it through the planer yeah that's the maximum width that off the shelf lumber can go before it starts to cup and warp to an unacceptable level so nature has naturally brought it that way where you see a one by twelve is going to have some cupping when your moisture migrates greater than 3% up or down. So if we right. sell our wood at, say, 8 to 10, if it's got to jump up to 15%, you're going to have problems because it's going outside of that 3% up or 3% down. And mm-hmm. if your thickness is not within 10 to 1 of your width, you have problems as well. So you're 5 and a half by three quarter wide, if you multiply that by 10, it makes sense. As soon as you go half inch thick by five and a half wide, then you start having numbers and customers coming back to you that saying, hey, this stuff's moving too much on me because I live on the coast, or it's moving too much on me because I live in the desert. And so a general rule of thumb that we've always used is 10 to one thickness to width. As soon as you go outside of that, like if you're trying to do a quarter inch piece, you got to laminate it on a piece of plywood. Okay. Well, it's interesting because now I'm, I'm seeing a, a bit of a disconnect because, you know, certainly in the solid wood world, I mean, wood movement is its a fact of life. You know, we, we deal with it and we, you know, exceed that one to 10 ratio all the time. Um, and through proper drying, you can ameliorate a lot of that, but also proper construction technique, not necessarily restricting, but restraining movement can prevent cupping. Um, yes. You know, you move into flooring, yes, that's an issue. Uh, and that's why we have engineered flooring, you know, laid up on a, on a plywood, plywood base. But from what it sounds like is what you're producing is essentially a finished dimension and it's not really recommended to muck with that. Like, this is not something I want to grab. I want to buy my five quarter board from you and then resaw it into a thinner board because the movement is of an unacceptable level when we do that. Is that what we're? No, it's, um, so when you're making a finished product, like is flooring or something Mm -hmm. that you send out there, because you're exactly right with drying wood out, if you dry it before you put it into work, we'll call it, whether it's turning it into a table or a piece of floor or whatever, if you dry it to mm-hmm. that equilibrium moisture content, you're great. But when that's got to move and you got to ship this to, say you're shipping it to Canada and it's real right. dry in the winter time, so it's going to be 6% in the winter, or you're shipping it to Brazil 
and it's going to be 18% during the rainy season. Those movements, when a finished product is there, are a problem. Mm -hmm. If it's just a piece of lumber, then you can dry it back out and sand it down or mill it down, and that's a solution just like re-sanding a floor. I mean, right. floor cups. And I guess, I guess that's what I'm getting year. at is you're producing a finished product um, as compared to, you know, if I'm shipping raw lumber, there is an expectation that there is additional work to be done. I've got to plane it. I've got to joint it. I've got to, you know, rip it into various sizes or whatever. But what you're actually shipping is a finished product, not necessarily a roughs on board. Correct. So it okay. does not that need any sense. planing on it. You can sand right. it down a little bit. We're trying to avoid anyone who says, hey, now that I got this in Malibu, California, it's cupped on me. So I say, well, right. we recommend if you buy a quarter inch by five and a half inch wide that you join it to a piece of plywood. Okay. So and what's interesting I, is... I learned that lesson with bamboo flooring. Mm-hmm. Bamboo flooring, we had some 12 mil thick by 142 wide, and it had a claims rate of like 3 to 5%. Mm-hmm. And the only thing we could really attribute it to is there's moisture movement that's going to happen because you can't restrict the area you sell it to. Or you Correct. can recommend using an engineered product, but that never works completely. And so if you sell a product that is safer, then those problems don't arise. Makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So there, there's a, a I've, I've been wanting to kind of lump this. I keep wanting to lump it into kind of a, a plywood composite product, but it's really kind of different for, especially from a moisture perspective, because it's, it's certainly not as, you know, as, as, as well, just call it what it is. Isotropic as as plywood because, and where plywood starts to warp is because it hasn't been dried properly. Um, you know, corners have been cut somewhere. The the individual plies haven't been dried as well, or in some instances, the glue vat ran out halfway through production and nobody really noticed. And the extreme pressure and heat got it to stick together anyway. You know, because a little bit of capillary action with the glue, but you still get shrinkage that happens. Um, the really well-made plywood that stays flat as a board and doesn't move no matter where you ship it around the world is individually well-dried, well-selected veneers and well-applied glue with constant heat and pressure. But what you're actually making is it's it's not really about that because of this goes back to the biomimicry thing, the fact that you're um, plenty, putting together a stranded product, it is going to continue to expand and contract just like it would, you know, um, in its natural state. In other words, we're not cross-banding anything like you would plywood. And I think that's the the key differentiator there. Yes. Um, I want to say this is a fully stable product because most composite things, when you think about them, you know, particle board is really a stable product. It's a crappy product, but it's a stable product. Um, this is not it. And I think that's kind of a key um, and that by listeners, this is not a, you know, oh, that's bad. It's it's something to to keep in mind. We're not actually talking about a perfectly stable plywood. We're talking about something that does act a lot like wood. Um, but yes. it's, it's a hybrid in between your plywood and your solid wood. So right. it falls directly. But it only took six months to produce, <laughs> which it is falls crazy. Directly in between a solid oak. And a piece of, well, I laid up a table today on top of a oak-faced piece of plywood that was made by Columbia Forestry Products. I love their stuff. Mm-hmm. It always works great. Sure. It comes out of West Virginia. 
So yeah. it's halfway in between a solid piece of oak and that piece of plywood on the high end. Okay. And that's why that's we say, hey, 20% more stable, that's easily acceptable. In reality, very often it shows more like 30 to 40% more stable. But if okay. you under-promise and over-deliver, things tend to yeah. work out a little bit better. Yeah, it's, it's always a good idea. Now, that's a really good way of looking at it. That actually helps me think about it a little bit differently because I've been wanting to throw it on the other extreme of the composite uh, or of the, um, not composite, engineered material, but hybrid is a really good way of looking at it. So that brings me to kind of my last question here. When we talk about composites and, and hybrid type products, I immediately start thinking of composite decking, you know, wood flower core, some sort of, of ethylene uh, outer sheath, if you will, or in some instances, 100% wood flower. The biggest issue we have with composite decking was mold. And we've got a essentially grass-like product that is, you know, it may be field dried and things, but um, hemp will mold if it gets wet pretty quickly. Am I right? So how are you dealing with the mold issue with hemp being your primary product? Well, a little bit of magic and a lot of science. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's well, actually a um, you know, dish detergent. So interesting. Our additive to our glue is dish detergent, which is anti-insect, anti-mold. Huh. Okay, so you're baking that into the process, literally. You're adding it into, into the glue compound, in other words. Correct. So um, Very cool. This Spanish guy that I used to know, my family owns building companies in Maryland. So Hammerhead Contracting, my older brother runs that. That's our family business. Um, okay. Our drywall guy used to use dish detergent in the um, in the mud for drywall. And that's how mm -hmm. he would get it so smooth, and that's how he wouldn't have mold spots coming in the join line. And that actually rolls over That's into awesome. making hemp wood. By adding dish detergent into it, you can keep the molds and the insects away. Wow. Okay, then. That's pretty cool. Look at that. You found an answer for everything. That's very cool. And yeah, I love the that fact the that chemist. it's all... <laughs> the chemist well, found okay. it said that makes sense. Right. You know, surround yourself with good people. That's what it's about. But still, what I love is that we're talking, we're very bootstrapped here. You know, we're buying our machinery on Facebook Marketplace. You know, we're using palm olive in the glue. <laughs> I love it. That's fantastic. That actually, uh, that, that makes me want to buy hemp wood more, actually, <laughs> now, that I, now that I hear the, the what's behind the curtain. That's very, very cool. Oh, yeah. We have, well, um, we have 20 guys that are hired here at our plant. Um, we uh -huh. just got our 20th person here. Everyone is paid above market wages by 20% in this area. And that's just because it's pretty hard work. And so sure. with what we're doing here, until we figure out the automation and all the people that are smarter than me come in here and really sort it out so it makes money, it's just us kind of coming up with how to do it as we go along and just muscling mm -hmm. through. And so in the area that we're at, it's really inexpensive. But at the same time, if someone can make 15 bucks an hour or something like that, it it changes their life when you have to go to a sure. factory down the street and make $12 an hour for doing similar stuff. People come here and they work a little bit harder. They give it a little bit more. Um, we try our best to sell to end customers. And we mm -hmm. sell through our website. Most of our sales go there. We're really picky about resellers and stuff like that. 
Uh, and right. part of that comes along with the fact that kind of have a trip on our shoulder about American manufacturing going overseas and a lot of those manufacturers just becoming a distributor so they can yeah. buy something from overseas and then sell it on and make the same profit without having the overhead of actually making the stuff. And so we're working with people that are good to what we're doing and people that are really wanting to do value add to it. So we love the downstream manufacturers. We love people over in Arkansas making duck calls out of it or people in Tennessee making flooring or people that are turning it into all these different things you can see on our Instagram page, which is hempwood underscore. I mean, there's all these different neat things that are kind of the grassroots movement. We're instigating everybody sharing how to work with it and what to do with it because it's such a new thing that we'll be honest, we don't really know what we're doing. We're making hemp wood, we're cutting it into boards and we're selling it to guys that are making, in Pennsylvania, one of our buddies made bow and arrows out of it. And he's shooting a 50 pound recurve that was made out of hemp wow. wood. And I said, how's that wow. shoot? He said, well, the first one was just for trials. The second one he made left-handed for his buddy. And the third one, he's shooting 50 pound recurve in his backyard. And he made arrows out of it, but he said he doesn't trust them. So the bow shoots, <laughs> but not the arrows. There's people making everything you could think out of it, and it'll end up being one of those one, two, three percent parts of the market. The renewable right. alternative to a 60 year old tree. And you can get it sure. all on the website at hempwood.com. It's um, what we always say, and people call all the time, and really, our whole marketing is people like you reach out to us and say, wow, that's cool. How can we put it out there? And so I appreciate right. that. And I just say, hey, it takes a village. If you go to the website, you buy something or you email us at sales at hempwood.com. We got picture frames. We got table kits. We got flooring. We got boards. We got blocks. We got turning blanks. I mean, every single month we try to come out with something new that the market tells us they want. Right. Very cool. Very cool. I mean, this is kind of a trend that I've actually seen very, very recently with COVID-19 is there is a lot of movement back to, on in the lumber business, back to these local Sawyers because you can't go to your big lumber mill anymore because it's either shut down or it's too far away, you're under quarantine. And this, this village cottage industry idea is really people kind of like it. And now that they were forced to kind of go into that, they're looking, how do I do this? How do I continue to support my local guy or my small business? And what I really am interested in is this is the lumber industry is ancient. You know, I mean, the, the company I work for has been around longer than this has been a country. You know, we, we date back prior to when we were still colonies. And, you know, that, that history is something where you think it's all kind of figured out. And really, a lot of the issues in the lumber industry kind of are figured out because they've been dealing with them so long. You're in, in a, an emerging market that, you know, not everything is figured out. And you guys are perfectly willing to say it's not all figured out. But, oh, by the way, we've got this university here who's working on this. And we've got these engineers here. And then we have all of you our customers that are figuring out little things, figuring out, hey, if you put some CA glue in that corner, that skew is gonna round that edge just a little bit cleaner than it did if you didn't. That's really cool. That's that's something that uh, I know a lot of my listeners can kind of get behind because they can kind of have a part in the development of this new product, which, wow, 
Oh, I'm impressed. It's very, very cool stuff. I, I, I appreciate you taking so much time, Greg. This is, um, we've been, we've been talking for more than an hour, believe it or not. So this is a uh, very, very cool. I'm excited to see where you guys take this. Oh, this will be a big thing and it'll be kind of the, the green alternative and it's not going to save the world. And no matter what somebody tells you, it's not going to be a godsend, but I always look at it and say, Hey, I need to have a tree that I can hang my tree stand on. <laughs> so we can't cut out, cut down all the oaks. Right. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, if you start uh, horning in on the white oak market, that's a very good thing because the white oak market is in trouble right now. There is not enough white oak to go around. So if you can start, if you can find a way to make Jack Daniels uh, in Hempwood, you're in good shape because all those micro distilleries out there... <laughs> We got Can you infuse tannins into it? We got a request for two million barrels worth of hempwood. Really? I wow. told him go fish. There's no way we're <laughs> ready to do that right now. But that request came through the Agricultural Hemp Innovation Center, and it was definitely from someone of similar status of what you just mentioned. Someone near Lynchburg-ish. <laughs> someone kind of close to where we are in Kentucky, Tennessee. Nice, nice. So, all right, well, well, speaking hey. of which, I, I need to, if, if I'm in the area, can I sw- swing by and get a tour of this plant? Because i got to see this. Yes. We try Absolutely. to wrangle in all of our visitors to Friday afternoon or Saturdays. So absolutely, nice. if anybody wants to come and see what's going on, come in, check us out, see what's going on. Our address is on the website, so you can go to hempwood.com. John is always here walking people through, and we do ask, hey, buy something at the end of it, because that's what right. keeps the wheel rolling. That's what makes sure. everything go around. If it's a picture frame or some flooring or a table kit, we'll throw it in the back of your truck. You can take it with you. Nice. Well, I, I tell you, that's that's my next step because I'm going to blend the old and the new, and I want to see how well I can turn some hemp wood on my foot-powered spring pole lathe. Let's, let's see how this works. <laughs> All righty. Well, hey, thank you. It could be a horrible disaster, but it's going to be fun. <laughs> well, it is a pleasure to talk to you. Um, shoot me an email Likewise. and get my um, personal phone number. I think we could sit down and have a beer and talk shop. It would be a lot of fun. Let's do it. Let's do it. I, I sincerely appreciate the time you took, Greg. I know it's a end of a long day for you, but uh, this has been really interesting, and we could geek out and talk science for a while, but I think we might lose some of the listeners at that point. <laughs> so thank you so much for your time. Uh, this has been really fun. And folks, go buy some hemp wood. I mean, the decision's obvious. 